Well, today on Roche Matters, it's a great pleasure and a privilege to have with us once again, uh, Lucy Hobgood-Brown. She's no stranger to this programme. You may know her as the energetic, empathetic lady with a heart of gold. She's um, been over in the Congo recently. Uh, she founded an organisation called Hand Up Congo, which we're going to be hearing about today. But Lucy Hobgood-Brown, give us an idea, if you would, firstly, Whereabouts actually is the Congo geographically? And give us an idea of the population, the ethnicity, and you know the standard of living over there, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Thank you. Yes, the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of two Congos. There is also a Republic of Congo. But the country I go to and where I grew up is the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's in Central Africa, right on the equator. And it's the second largest country in Africa, on, on, on the African continent. What would be the population uh, who live there? It's growing by leaps and bounds, approximately 90 million people today. 19 or 90? 90, 90. Oh, wow. Yep. With more than 200 ethnic groups. The principal tribe is called the Bantu. And uh, what's the um, standard of living for these people, Lucy, compared to, say, to, to, to Australia? It's one of the five poorest nations in the world, which is shocking because it has enough water from its rivers to power hydroelectricity for millions, if it was tapped correctly. And it has mineral riches including the very important mineral that is powering our smartphones, our iPads, and Tesla cars. So it has enough mineral riches to be one of the wealthiest countries on Earth. However, for decades, it has had conflict. It has had poor infrastructure and corrupt or unstable, unstable governments. So it is not placed well in terms of um, socioeconomic development. It's as I said, it's one of the five poorest countries in the world. So, so what's the cause of the conflict? Is it is it racial? Um, is it religious? What's the the, the background to that? It's was well, it, conflict has come from different for different reasons over its history. But currently, it's uh, really countries sneaking in and trying to get their mineral riches. And um, because it's the infrastructure has gotten so bad over the years that it's very hard for the military or the United Nations peacekeeping body, which is there trying to in enforce peace, um, for it to govern the, the peace building and the conflict. A lot of militias are running wild in northeast Congo where the mineral riches are and so they are causing a lot of um, this distress. Now Lucy your family has a long history with this part of the world. Um, you founded an organization which is called Hand Up Congo. Give us an idea if you would how a hand up is better than a handout. Yes, my family uh, went to, has been involved with the, the Congo for three generations. My grandparents went to Congo in about 1912 as American missionaries. My father and his five siblings were all born in the Congo, and my parents went, returned as adults, uh, and that's why I grew up in Congo. 
We founded Hand Up Congo in 2005 after I went back to the country with my father who wanted to see the village where he was born once more before he got too frail to be able to travel by canoe. That's the only way to get to the village where he was born is by dugout canoe. And I saw the poverty with the women particularly touched me. And I asked the women, is there anything I can do to help? And they said they just needed um, a few resources like sewing machines in order to um, raise a, enough income by selling clothes that they would make so that they would have money for school fees and health care for their families. So on returning to uh, Australia after that trip, uh, with my sister Anne and with another friend, Betsy, we decided we would found um, Hand Up Congo. The reason being that um, handouts are short term. So you could give $5 to someone who's begging on the street, but you might not never know what happened to that person. And they might use that food immediately to, to that money to buy food, but it won't be a long-term solution to that person's poverty. So we called our organization Hand Up Congo because we wanted to um, provide an opportunity for more long-term relationships with our Congolese colleagues. And we also knew it would be more, re more rewarding, not only for us as um, colleagues, but at, for our Congolese friends as well. Now, Lucy, when you went out there, you said you spoke to the women to find out what they needed and how they could advance themselves. Did you deliberately not talk to the men or were the men just simply not available um, or susceptible to your approaches? Well, on that trip, my father was there. And because he was had been born in Lotumbi and his many of his friends had walked for days through the forest in order to um, see him again, people that he had hunted and fished with as a boy. So the men were all very interested in catching up with my father and introducing their sons to someone who had been a, a hunter and a fisherman and who had gone on to found a Protestant university in Congo and who was continuing to be, had been continuing to, to be involved in Congo for years. So yes, I, I certainly did uh, interact with the men in the village and my sister had taken her two teenage sons with us as well. And my husband had gone with me as well. So the men and the boys were all clustered around the guys in our group where my sister and I just focused mostly on talking to the women and girls in the village. So we're talking today on Rotary Matters with Lucy Hobgood-Brown, who founded Hand Up Congo. Lucy's got a long family history, as you've just heard, uh, with the Congo. She went there in 2005. She spoke with, particularly with the women, to find out what they might need in order to advance themselves. Uh, Lucy, um, you uh, came back to Australia knowing that sewing machines could could help them become established and, and earn an income. Where did the sewing machines come from? We bought them in Congo's capital, Kinshasa. We always try when we're buying equipment to buy it in Congo so it helps the local economy and it saves as well on shipping costs from Australia or another country where the equipment might be found. Um, from that 
first initiative of sewing machines, we then learned a lot more about community development and we became involved with Rotary. I joined uh, Rotary at that time in order to get tax deductible donations uh, and receipts for our, our supporters. And our, our projects then went on, on to many other uh, areas of focus, including education, microfinance, agriculture. Um, and so we didn't just stay in the area of, of sewing machines, but it was a ripple effect. Tell us about microfinance. What does that actually mean? Microfinance is a, has been a boon for women all over the world. And it basically is an opportunity for uh, people to contribute a small amount of money and then to get a loan from a group fund. It might be just enough to buy a bag of flour. Um, and then that person goes and uses that flour to uh, earn income and then puts the money back into the, the group fund. And a loan can then be made to someone else in the group. So in Lotumbi, the village where dad was born and where we focus a lot of our work, we work with a microfinance group, we call them microcredit mamas. Mm -hmm. And they have a group of about 30 women who all put in a little bit of money. It might be as, as little as one uh, Australian dollar, and, but it goes a long way in Congo. And they then take turns on who gets to take out enough money to buy a bag of flour or to buy a goat. And then they have a certain amount of time to reimburse that, that fund and give another woman an opportunity. Microfinance has been so creatively used, particularly by women around the world. And in Congo, it's resulted in the most amazing outcomes where a woman might have made enough money selling bread made by that bag of flour that she bought or invested in, that she can then buy a goat, she can then um, buy a duck and sell the eggs, and um, then have enough money to make sure her kids can pay the school tuition fees. And can we have one success story of a woman who bought a canoe and a motor, and she was able then to take her wares to Riverside Markets and was able then to have enough money to put a tin roof on her mud hut, which made the hut uh, last longer, and uh, shoes for her children and to have vaccinations for her children. It, it really is uh, so brilliant to hear these success stories from women who know that they made the difference in their own lives themselves. What a, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful story, an inspirational story. Lucy, um, tell us something about the um, food security situation. Um, you mentioned to me once before a project called Be Like a Honey or Be a Honey. Can you update us on yeah, that? I can. So for a country that is located in the world's second largest rainforest, the opportunities uh, for finding enough food are still quite scarce because the the hunting has been reduced drastically by refugees going into the forest. Fishing has been reduced drastically, even though they live on uh, this particular village of Lotumbi is on a, a huge river with fish. Um, so one of the questions that we always ask, and as we do our rotary assessments, is 
what are the priorities that you as a community have? So they tell us what they need. And they also tell us what resources they have. And we have learned that in this village are um, indigenous people called pygmies who have lived in the forest and who capture wild bees in order to get their honey. And we then said, well, there are more sustainable ways of beekeeping because the pygmies have traditionally burned down or cut down trees in order to get wild honey. And in order for us to not lose precious trees that impact climate change, we've uh, provided beekeeping suits and smokers and, and uh, introduced more sustainable beekeeping methods. This led to our um, Be a Honey for Congo initiative, where one of our team members is a beekeeper and she sells her Australian honey from her own hives in Sydney to go towards emergency medicine education and towards the beekeeping project so that ongoing training can continue to be provided. So trees are not being cut down anymore. They, their honey is coming from hives in the sort of um, European sense of the word, I suppose. Um, and the beekeepers are uh, safely kitted out in um, the right costume to enable them to do this. Yes, we, 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 uh, there's always more training that is needed, including in how to be viable commercially, because now they only have a way of selling honey using old uh, soft drink plastic bottles, which aren't very hygienic, and selling it locally. But mm -hmm. our goal is long-term goal, that they can uh, have the equipment and the uh, project where they can learn about um, business plans and marketing so they can sell their honey further afield. So Lucy Hobgood-Brown, your original um, village or township is called Latumbe. Um, just give us an idea of the population of Latumbe. There are approximately 6,000 people living in this community, but about 87,000 people access this community's resources. Oh. <laughs> it's got a it's got a hospital. Um, it's in a rural health zone, so people come there from by canoe or they walk on forest paths to access the resources that Lotumbi has. It has a preschool and K through twelve schools that are very basic, homemade benches, no blackboards, no library books. But um, we did get a grant this last year from Balwyn Rotary Club in Victoria, and we're going to be building a community hub that will provide a space this year for a library and for training for the sewing school and to store equipment like hose and machetes, a sawmill that people in the village can then check out like library books um, that they can then go use to um, for more income generating projects. This must be very satisfying for you though, Lucy, to see the way the community has developed and is uh, now being able to access much of what we take for granted in the West uh, in order it to get their standard of living and their level of education. Um, emergency medicine education, uh, just talk to us about that. Uh, what do we mean by that? And, and, and how is Hand Up Congo impacting that? It is satisfying to go back. In fact, I just took a team to Lotumbi 
and to Kinshasa in January. That was the first trip that we'd been able to make since 2019 because of the worldwide pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it was very exciting to see the achievements that have taken place in the village and as well with hospitals um, that we have done emergency medicine training with since 2019. We took this time two rural health specialists from Australia, two doctors, Dr. Grace Mano, who happens to be the president of the Rotary Club Taree in New South Wales. And we took Dr. Etwell Mari, who's a rural health specialist from Perth, WA. And they provided training in obstetric emergency medicine at three locations. We heard some horrifying stories from women. For example, one woman uh, described how she had a C-section with no anesthesia. Oof. So the the context for poverty in particularly outside of the capital city of Kinshasa are horrifying. It made our doctors weep, made me weep, and we just became doubly committed to providing uh, resources not only for training so that uh, more mothers and babies can be saved, but also in fundraising for um, practices like anesthesia so that there would be an emergency fund for um, for women. And so what's the situation now? I mean, is there enough anesthetic um, in the hospital at Otumbe to, to cope with the demand? No, there isn't. Okay. And on top of that, people in Congo can't get treated in hospitals unless they have the money to get treated. While we were there, uh, Grace, the doctor, also assisted in, a, in an operation <coughs> for a man who had a hernia and it impacted his um, his bowels. He had um, he would die if he didn't have this surgery. But uh, Dr. Grace stepped in along with um, another team member and offered the money to cover the anesthesia costs as well as the antibiotics that he needed. I'm happy to say he has survived and they sent pictures of him out of hospital. But that's one example of a man who would have died a very painful death if our team hadn't happened to be there just at the right time. Now, when you went over in January, another motive you had was to plant a peace pole. Tell us about that, the peace poles. That's right. Because um, Congo has been involved in conflict for so many years, we knew that one of the initiatives that we hadn't done yet was to plant a rotary peace pole. Now, this is an initiative that started after World War II by a Japanese survivor of Hiroshima who said, we've got to have symbols of peace in countries around the world that can be catalysts for conversations locally about peace building. So Rotary um, in Australia has a centenary project. They introduced having clubs take peace poles to countries where they, they're uh, working. So we thought, aha, this time, let's take a Rotary peace pole. And Rotary Club of Taree, my club, Rotary E-Club of Greater Sydney, and the Rotary Club of Blackheath all contributed to have panels put on a pole. And the message in four local languages in Congo was, may peace prevail on earth. So we had a very exciting ceremony. We chose to put it in Equateur province, which is the province where our teams get into the canoe to go to Lotumbi. 
It has a population of about 900,000 people. And we had a wonderful ceremony in collaboration with Congolese Rotarians. One of the funny things that happened at that ceremony was the mayor came along to uh, launch the peace poll and introduce the town in Bandaka as a city of peace. But standing right behind him through the whole ceremony was his armed bodyguard. So with a great big scary gun. Um, So that tickled our funny bones. But it was also a reminder that peace is fragile Mm -hmm. in countries like Congo. So you took with you the plaque that said, may peace prevail on earth. And that was affixed to a pole which you sourced locally um, and had planted in the ground in a prominent location. With the, That's with, right. Yeah. The local Rotarians had uh, invited local artists to create a, a podium that the pole was then affixed on top of with a great big rotary symbol and with the words, um, Mbandaka is now a city of peace. So they wanted it to be big enough to be seen from space. We we said that what? wasn't necessary. <laughs> a, a smaller pole was, would be perfectly adequate and meaningful, but it was a lovely ceremony. Is there a photograph anywhere, um, Lucy Hobbergood-Brown, yes. of the peace pole? Yes, we have many photographs, and I can share those with any club that's thinking about planting a peace pole in their community or overseas. Is there an an image on your website, the Hand Up Congo website, do you know? Not on the website yet. It's on our Hand Up Congo Facebook. Okay. But in in coming days, we we are updating our website and and we will include it on there, yes. Well, listeners, I'd urge you to do that because it is a very inspirational gesture and fantastic that uh, Lucy was able to take one uh, to the Congo. Lucy, you've mentioned Rotary a few times. Um, a number of Rotary clubs are clearly supporting your work, which is terrific. The You mentioned, I think, the tax deductibility of donations. Can you just um, uh, bring us up to date on that? Yes. So I'm an active project manager for Rotary Australia World Community Service. The acronym is ROCKS, mm-hmm. and anyone can make a donation to my projects or to others in other parts of the world through ROCKS, and that website is rawcs.org.au. Okay, so this is the this is the way that you can donate to the wonderful work that Lucy is doing in, in the Congo. What's the best thing, Lucy Hobgo-Brown, that our listeners could do to, to, to help to assist you? We have projects now, uh, not only in uh, emergency medicine education, we have projects in education, just generally for girls. And uh, we're a new area that we're working in, which is the seventh area of focus for Rotary is environment protection. So anyone interested in beekeeping or environment protection could also designate that. We're planting Uh, We planted 2,000 trees while we were in Congo in January, and we plan to plant many more with the help of school children in coming months. So people can go to the ROCKS website, find our project, and then designate what they're particularly interested in, whether it's health, education, microfinance, environment protection. Um, Those opportunities are there, and I'm happy to liaise with people directly and can provide photos and personal stories for individuals if they have a very special 
um, request. For example, recently, a friend of ours um, turned 80, and he said, instead of giving me gifts, make a donation to Hand Up Congo in my name and designate if you're interested in health or education or whatever. And we raised quite a bit of money through this man's birthday party. And that's another thing that people can do. We're a small enough organization that we can personalize uh, responses and ensure people that their money is directed in the way that makes a difference, not only to them personally, but to the local community where we're working. Is, is it at all feasible for somebody to come and visit Latombe? Well, if they're brave enough to go on a 15-hour motorized dugout canoe journey, yes. Oh. <laughs> it, it, it takes a lot of energy to go to Lotumbi because there's no electricity, there's no running water. We sleep in the house that my grandparents built in 1912, and that house is crumbling. Um, I fell through the floor this time. Oh, no. <laughs> so people have to be uh, pretty... Uh, courageous, I think, to go because it's not comfortable physically, but it's very, it's a very beautiful journey in the canoe. And it, the people there uh, greet, greeted us this trip and on every trip as our, they could hear the sound of our motor as we, our canoe approached Lotumbi, but out of the darkness, we heard people singing. People had gone out into canoes and paddled to shore with us singing. So that, for volunteers who go with me, that's absolutely an extraordinary way to be greeted. And the, the village was there to, to walk us ashore. We walked through a path up to my grandparents' original oh. home, paths that were lined with palm fronds, and people continued to sing the whole way. It's just wrapped in love and wrapped in joy, and it, it's, um, it's a memorable experience for volunteers. Lucy, look, my personal congratulations. I love hearing your stories. It's an inspiration what you're doing and what you continue to do um, in that uh, part of the world. Listeners, um, I've got the privilege of watching Lucy on this interview by Zoom. Let, let me tell you, she is wearing Congo-inspired earrings and a dress, I think, on top, which is brightly coloured, as you'd imagine, coming from uh, from Africa. Uh, I hope you'll get a chance to meet Lucy Hobbiger Brown one day soon. Um, I've always I always enjoy hearing your stories, Lucy. And um, listeners, if you want to um, get in touch with Lucy, Lucy, just give us one more time your website address. It's handup.org.au, and I'd also like to invite anyone who's in the Sydney area to come to Hand Up Congo's 18th birthday party which will be held in one of our volunteers' beautiful gardens on Saturday, March 4th, from 2 to 5 p.m. It's a free event, and uh, we do ask that people book so that we can provide enough wonderful nibbles. But that they can also email me at handupcongo at gmail.com, and I can send you the details. But do come and celebrate with us on March 4th if you can. Well, that's fantastic. Hand up. .org.au is where you need to go. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for your time today. It's lovely talking to you. Uh, wishing you every success going forward.